Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It was a week in which the United States and the world were forced to confront the possible consequences of the boundless avarice and contempt for law of Donald Trump. The revelations of Trump's plundering of public documents grew worse by the day, in part because of his own hapless lawyering that opened the door for the Department of Justice to explain the particulars of the search of Mar-a-Lago. We now know that Trump took over 10,000 public documents, more than 300 of which contain classified information, and repeatedly resisted giving them back with feints, concealment, and eventually outright lies. When the FBI finally went in after months of being, as former Attorney General Bill Barr aptly put it, jerked around, they found in Trump's desk drawer alone multiple top-secret documents that, by definition, could do exceptionally grave damage to the national security. It now falls to our counterintelligence officials and those of our allies to try to assess the damage that Trump's illegal possession may already have inflicted on critical foreign intelligence functions. In court and the public sphere, meanwhile, Trump trotted out a series of brazen and bankrupt arguments and republished the most violent and vitriolic messages from his MAGA crew. President Biden, meanwhile, delivered a curtain-opening speech to the midterm election season in which he called out Trump and his extremist supporters by name as a threat to the soul of the country. The Trump developments have displaced the Russia-Ukraine war from the headlines, but that war grinds on, and as it does, it brings a series of permanent changes to the global world order. To piece together the tumultuous state of play in the U.S. and the world, we welcome three national and global experts, and they are... Juliet Kayyem, a national security analyst at CNN and the senior Belfer lecturer in international security at Harvard's Kennedy School. She served as President Obama's assistant secretary for intergovernmental affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. She is the author of two books, Security Mom and The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters, and very happy to say a regular guest on this podcast, Julia Kayyem. Thanks, as always, for being here. Thank you for having me. And another in the small circle, very regular guest, happy to welcome back after a summer when he's been away a fair bit, Matt Miller. He's a partner at Villanovo and the former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the DOJ and a justice and security analyst for MSNBC. He's worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate, and he's written widely for national publications. Matt Miller, great as always to welcome you. Thanks for making us work on a holiday weekend, Harry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and a first-time guest to Talking Feds, Dr. Corey Shockey. Corey, I hope I can call you that, is the Director of Foreign and Defense Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where she's also a senior fellow. Previously, she was the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. She's also worked at the U.S. State Department, U.S. Department of Defense, and the National Security Council at the White House. 
and she's had a distinguished career in the Academy, the author of five books, and published in numerous policy journals, popular publications, and she continues to be herself a contributing writer at The Atlantic and at War on the Rocks, which is a very interesting platform I didn't know about before for analysis and debate on strategy, defense, and foreign affairs. Corey Shockey, thanks so much for coming to Talking Feds for the first time. It is such a joy, and I'm such a fan of the other contributors on this podcast, so it's going to be fun. All right, so let's roll. I think we can position, really, the national and global issues in the 20-month effort, culminating in a search of Mar-a-Lago to claw back what we now know to have been over 10,000 public documents, and hundreds of them, of course, of the highest sensitivity that the former president purloined when he left government. So he's come out of the box several times. Legally, it seemed to have been a lot of self-inflicted wounds, but, you know, it's maybe been a political and fundraising bonanza. How has this premature or at least unnecessary PR effort of his gone? Let me say something first about this idea that it's been a PR bonanza for him, because you have heard that from yeah. him and his defenders yeah. saying, oh, his, his numbers have gone up in the polls, which to me is a little bit like getting diagnosed with stage four cancer and then bragging about the number of well-wishers you received. It doesn't do anything <laughs> about your fundamental underlying problem. And in fact, it's actually irrelevant to it. You still have stage four cancer, and he's still the subject, maybe the target of a very serious criminal investigation. And I think to answer your question... His legal and PR strategy, to the extent it is even a strategy, I think has really always been just designed to get through the news cycle, not to actually yeah. fix the underlying problem. And so it's looked like walking around, stepping on a series of rakes, starting with the way he's handled the investigation, which would be over had he just returned the documents. He would be sitting now with no criminal jeopardy on this particular inquiry. But instead, he took all the steps that have been well-documented to not turn them over and lie about it, which now has him in serious legal jeopardy. He then filed this claim that invited the Justice Department to come and release a bunch of incriminating information about him publicly, which is not a great PR strategy, obviously, or a legal one. And then on top of that, continues to say things publicly that I think, should he ever be indicted, will come back to bite him. For example, he said this week, I think personally for the first time, that he had declassified this information. Mm -hmm. His defenders have said that. I think that was the first time he said it. Should he ever be indicted and go to trial, that'll be used against him as evidence of continuing to lie and conceal what actually happened, because I guarantee you he won't be able to present any evidence that he actually did that. So I think the entire strategy has been a mess from day one. Boy, that is beautifully put. Let me just second it from the legal vantage point and just note that in general, this has been a problem for the Trump team all the way along and a boon for the country. It takes a long time and the pieces have to align on the board just right to get into court. But once you're there and you actually have to tell the truth or have penalty of perjury, it's a different ballgame. And just to your point, Matt, for people who don't know, anything you say, whether or not he testifies at trial, if he's ever indicted, and can you imagine a more of a bloodbath of a cross-examination than yeah. his testifying at trial, it all comes in. It all comes in, whereas normally his calculation is, you know, yeah, 
two-thirds of the people won't believe me, screw them, I'm going to inflame my base. Those two-thirds will be on the jury, and (laughs) if it ever comes up, it it is just disastrous. It's also legally in the short term. I mean, he could have, yes, just not taken the documents. He could even, having taken them, just kept quiet, and the DOJ wouldn't have spoken. They want to speak in court, but he's given them the opportunity, arguably the compulsion, to reveal a lot of this stuff to the country in response to his dishonest submissions. I have a couple of thoughts just based on the news today and over the last couple of weeks. I mean, the yeah. first is, of course, the national security implications, not just for us, sort of what's in the documents, the things that's killing us, right? Is it about Macron having uh, an interesting personal life, you know, the French president, where apparently that's what Trump likes to actually read, or, you know, our sources and methods. And your mind can go kind of crazy, sort of wondering. I think in some ways that makes this issue as compared to, say, Russia and 2016, which was like convoluted, or even January 6, I have strong opinions about it, but where he's trying to sort of obfuscate you know, whether it was in fact incitement. This is just clear. He had documents he shouldn't have had. Those documents were treated carelessly. And what we have to remember is we have allies who support us in these intelligence efforts. They're looking at this story, too. We always talk about our enemies, foreign and domestic. Our allies are looking at this and saying, what could they possibly have of ours and what could be disclosed? So that's the first big takeaway. The second is I think the messiness of it, you know, that visual in the motion was quite something. But I actually think that it's the obstruction charges that are the ones that are going to have a lot of weight because let's just go through the timeline and I'm going to give Trump the benefit of the doubt, which I don't think he's earned it, but let's just assume there's just an incredibly carelessness, which we've known about him a long time. He gets down to Mar-a-Lago. There's a whole bunch of crap in the boxes. There's classified and unclassified. There's clothing like God knows, right? He is told months ago that he's careless And instead of saying, okay, this is my out, right? I've been caught with my hand in the cookie jar, even if it was not meant to be there, he lies and he continues to lie. And that's what the obstruction charges are really about. And then even at the moment of the search warrant, they think they know what they're going after. And lo and behold, they have so much more. So I think in that regard, and then just very quickly, something Matt said, there is simply no evidence right now. The polling is actually extremely strong in favor. It's about 60% now of this continuing investigation. I come from that world of sort of domestic radicalization. The extremes are extreme. They will always be extreme. There is simply no evidence that the base is growing, let alone the violent base is growing because of that. And I look at them for a variety of reasons. This is true. But you could just look at the sort of, you know, walking away by many GOP members. But any time that Trump has tried to rally support around this, he's getting about two dozen people to show up at Mar-a-Lago. That is not the civil war. Some of those people can be incredibly dangerous. I'm not minimizing that. It takes two people to do Oklahoma City. But nonetheless, their threats seem kind of comical now, in my mind. Boy, I sure hope that's true, because the open encouragement of violence by the disgraced former president surrounding this genuinely worries me. I hope nobody responds to the call, but that's one thing that I suspect may weigh heavily If this actually goes to trial, the effort to intimidate witnesses with political violence. Two other quick things. Those cover sheets wouldn't have been on the documents if the president had declassified them. So these are classified documents, not declassified documents. Anybody in the country who does what the president and everybody around him are justifying him doing would go to prison, does go to prison. 
And so there's a rule of law question. And I guess the third thing, I thought it was really striking that former Attorney General Barr was up on Fox News saying, yes, the Justice Department's behavior is unprecedented because the former president's behavior is unprecedented. And I think it's important not to lose that parallel that the Justice Department is being pushed into carrying out the rule of law in unprecedented circumstances because of the former president's unprecedented behavior. Let me add two things to what you said. First, yeah, we now know there were thousands of documents generally, non-classified, and then hundreds. I just have this image of someone or Trump himself on January 19th, rummaging around in what looks good. And we know he's notoriously dull-witted. Anything that has to do with policy or important programs, that would be of no interest. But anything that, you know, could be in People magazine or what was it about Macron? And he's looking for salaciousness. And when you think about that, a kind of terrifying image. Second, I do want to say, yes, you could give him the benefit of the doubt. And you're absolutely right that obstruction matters most. And it should once we're talking subpoena and search warrant. One detail, though. The, what is it now? Some 50 empty classification sleeves. So I don't see anybody but Trump being the person who picks these up and goes through them. So it couldn't have been that he just, you know, scooped it all up along with some clothes and M&Ms and never looked at it. He obviously was interested after he absconded with them. Yeah. I want to just pick up on something that both Juliet and Corey said, which I do think the obstruction is the most important part because it's the obstruction that's going to get him indicted for the rest. The truth is you can mishandle classified information and not get indicted. It really has to be almost like mishandling plus something else. It has to be a big number of documents. You have to have taken them and given them to the media. You have to take them and given them to a foreign government, or you have to obstructed the government's investigation. You have to have lied to the government or taken some other action. If you look at all of the cases in the past, it's usually not just someone who takes a document home, and then if they figure it out themselves, or if the government comes and asks for it back, they give it back. So the rule of law question that Corey raises is ultimately why I think he's likely to be indicted in this case, because at the end of everything, when the Justice Department looks at the previous cases in which they've indicted people or insisted on plea deals, there are a number of cases with sets of facts that are not nearly as damning as a set of facts in this case. And so it's very hard under the principles of justice to not either insist on a plea deal, which you can't imagine Trump agreeing to, or indict. Yeah. They are obviously investigating aggressively. It seems like they cannot but investigate aggressively. In investigating aggressively, they're turning up damning fact after damning fact. Every single stage, even the very first one, was when they held a gun to his head and said, we're going to tell Congress if you don't give these over. And at the end of the day, I know some people think it's a done deal already. I don't think Merrick Garland is among them. (laughs) But it's very hard to see this all coming to his desk and his owning the historic decision of taking a pass on it. Things really do feel different for all the warnings and times that we've predicted that Trump was finally going to get his. All right. I want to move to the broader global scale because we're finding out more and more, I think, 
about just how damaging this potentially has been, not just for us, but for our allies. The director of intelligence is, you know, conducting a damage assessment. I've seen two or three different versions of the Uh question to real experts like John Brennan. How do you do that? How do you even go about trying to figure out if this has resulted in real damage up to and including assassinations of sources of ours? And the answer keeps coming back. A, it's hard. And B, you have to assume the worst. I mean, if that's true, the worst here is breathtaking. Yes. So what's going on and how can you try to put a overall calculus here of what his criminal conduct has resulted in for not just us, but our allies? So that's a hard one for me to answer. Juliet's point earlier about allied hesitation about sharing There was a lot of talk about that, particularly after the president's reckless revelations to the Russians early on in the administration. So allies have known this is a problem. Trump is a risk for a long time. It's hard to see. I would have to know what information he took, what he planned to do with it. There's clearly the risk of other people stealing it because it wasn't secured. Which we wouldn't know, right? Somebody could have taken a picture, including, as I understand it, from afar, just through someone's phone and they didn't even know it. Of course. I mean, all of us are cheering as groups like Bellingcat place Russian equipment for targeting purposes in the war. And all of that is also possible at Mar-a-Lago. Right. And so I do think there's a genuine risk. I don't think allies have been particularly hesitant about sharing, even though they were anxious about it. But stuff like TSSCI is presumed to be handled with care because of sources and methods. And the recklessness with which the president has been handling it is a real counterintelligence risk. Juliet, you wrote a great, another in a series of great articles. Do you write any other kind of articles? But I really commend it in The Atlantic about why Trump's safe was not safe, as you put it. Right. But I mean, it goes to the very bad position that this jerk has put all the good guys around the world in and possible ongoing damage just in our relationships, et cetera. Can you spell that out, and employ your well-worn concept of uh, damage control and what could that even looks like here. I think that is the challenge. I mean, even if you assume the worst in terms of what's disclosed, there's not much you can do about it. Either the harm is already done, this stuff has been leaking as far as we know for two years, right? So imagine your worst case scenario, the name of a human asset in a terror group in Afghanistan, that damage is done, right? So as in that person is dead, dead or the, or if if we found out in time that person has been, you know, extricated, so to speak, and the benefit of having them there is done. But I think it's the not knowing in a highly regulated system that depends on need to know that is probably this like paradox or juxtaposition that we find ourselves in. And I, the point I wanted to make in the piece was when we've got this issue about sort of motive, what was Trump doing? And then do we have to be worried about what in fact he was doing? We can't answer that right now because I do think it could be he's just negligent. 
I do think it could be, he was selling stuff. I have no idea. I mean, getting inside his head has been, you know, as like after six years, you're like, if anyone's that good at it, yeah, madness. tell me. Yeah. So it is more that the very fact of it becomes an issue for the Biden administration. We tend to always focus about Trump, what's in his mind, what he did, the legal culpabilities. But this is something that they're going to just have to figure out. And you know, I take hope in what Corey said in terms of whether it is, okay, the allies already knew this and they know that the Biden administration is much more reliable which is good, but it is a mess. You have to deal with it and deal with the consequences of it. I have to say, I've only ever been a consumer of intelligence. I'm always clear about that. And even for my purposes out of Homeland Security, that intelligence is often at a very, very strategic level. It's never sources and methods. There's no reason for someone like me to do it. I used to always joke that at Homeland Security, your intelligence sometimes is just the weather report, right? I mean, in other words, what's going on in this country is to make that clear. But you do have a confidence as a consumer in the necessity of your need to know as the reader. And I think that's really important to remember because now Trump has just opened it up to everyone as a potential reader. We just don't know at this stage. Everyone's a consumer. We don't know who those everyones are. I want to add one thing about Trump. I, you know, it is fruitless, I think, to try to psychoanalyze him. But between the two scenarios of just negligent, never cared about anything, and figuring out, you know, Manchurian candidate deals. There is a middle ground, and that it's what my mind went to when I learned about all the empty folders. Yeah. And that is, he just kind of likes to sort of, as he did with Russia, to brandish these around and show them, and look, isn't this funny or interesting, et cetera. And the possibility of damage there is itself immense. It's now time for our sidebar in which we explain an important concept in the news. We now know that Donald Trump took about a year to supply the first cache of documents to the archives, that they then learned that there were classified docs among them, and the Department of Justice served the subpoena that the Trump team failed to fully comply with the subpoena and lied about it, and that then the DOJ went in and had to go in with a search warrant. So what exactly is the difference between a subpoena and a search warrant? That's the topic we'll take up today. And to explain it to us, I'm thrilled to welcome Penn Gillette, one half of the world-famous magic duo Penn and Teller. Penn has been featured, along with Teller, in numerous stage and television productions, and they continue to headline at the Rio in Las Vegas. Penn also can be heard with his great podcast, Penn's Sunday School, and the two of them, Penn and Teller, are now offering a masterclass. So Penn and Teller's unique, conceptual, and dazzling magic is available in these many venues. So I give you Penn Gillette on search warrants versus subpoenas. When federal prosecutors are investigating a potential crime, there are two primary ways that they can force someone to give them information. First, prosecutors may use grand jury subpoenas. These subpoenas require the recipients to give the grand jury testimony or documents. A prosecutor may subpoena non-privileged information 
with no judicial approval so long as there is a reasonable possibility that that category of material will produce information relevant to the general subject of the grand jury's investigation. If a party objects to the subpoena, he or she can go before a judge and ask to have the subpoena ruled improper or quashed. Subpoenas are often quashed if they seek privileged information, but rarely because the information they seek is not relevant. Prosecutors also utilize search warrants when they want to search for and seize particular pieces of evidence from a target. A search warrant is usually issued by a magistrate judge. Because the target has no opportunity to object until after the search and seizure, the standards for obtaining a search warrant are higher than for a subpoena. An application for a warrant must identify the particular person or property to be searched and seized and must provide probable cause to believe that the objects that may be lawfully seized will be found in the identified location. If someone is subject to an improper search and seizure, he or she may challenge it after the fact, either by seeking to have the evidence excluded from the prosecution or by filing a suit against the government for damages or return of the property. Thank you very much, Penn Gillette, for explaining search warrants and subpoenas to us. Penn and Teller's Fool Us can be seen on Fridays on the CW channel. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thanks, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we whip through the whiskeys to find out the difference between the three main types, scotch, bourbon, and rye. Whiskey, spelled without an E, is produced in Scotland and Canada, whereas whiskey, spelled with an E, means it's produced in the U.S. and Ireland and includes scotch, bourbon, and rye. It's these grains that help define which type of whiskey it will become before it eventually lands among the thousands of bottles on the shelves at your local Total Wine and More. Now, let's talk about scotch. Scotch is typically made from malted barley, blended with other grains, and that helps give it a little bit of a bite, making it more in an acquired taste. Bourbon must be made from at least 51% corn, produced in the U.S. and aged in new charred oak barrels. The oak gives this brown liquid its signature sweet flavor. And then there's rye, which must be made from at least, yep, you guessed it, 51% rye. Rye is a type of grass in the wheat family that has a spicy, edgier flavor, adding a little extra kick you may not find in a bourbon. For a true test of bourbon versus rye, we recommend you pop into Total Wine, maybe grab a bottle of scotch while you're here. But to really get to know the differences in scotch, bourbon, and rye, Start by talking to the guides at Total Wine & More, who are more than happy to talk day or night about whiskey, with or without an E. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. I really want to profit from Corey's yeah. presence here, especially because she has to leave a little bit early, to delve into a topic that all the Trump stuff has kind of driven off the front pages but remains as important. We're at the six-month mark now of the war of Russian aggression that was justifiably on the front pages sort of every day. Corey, you've been really trenchant about this. Let me just ask you first where we are on the chessboard. You know, where do the two sides stand in terms of their military position and what, if anything, has sort of changed in the last, say, month? Yes. So I think the Ukrainians are slowly winning 
and slowly and painfully winning. The basic equation on the Ukrainian side is every transvestite and ballerina in the country is in the army, is being trained by NATO countries and is being armed by NATO countries. And all of us are hugely impressed with their adaptability, with their toughness, with their seriousness about the undertaking. Their strength is growing with time, provided they can keep enough soldiers in the fight. And we don't really have a very good sense of the personnel piece on the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, they thought this was going to be fast and easy. They thought they had compromised the leadership. They thought they could have a decapitation attack. They were arrogant enough to come in on five different lines of operations and failed on all five. And in the community of defense experts, we're scratching our heads and trying to figure out how did we think the Russian military was so much better than it is? That corruption is rife, that communications are terrible. You know, we used to joke that the most dangerous job in the world was being the number two in Al-Qaeda. The most dangerous job in the world is now being a general in the Russian army because they neither have the discipline nor the communications to be able to stand back and direct a fight in the way a Western military would. And so they're trying to rush to the front and with accurate weapons and good intelligence, they are being targeted. But the more general problem for the Russians is their inability to adapt once they determine they're failing. They keep doing the same things. And increasingly, the only things they are proficient in is artillery bombardment of civilian locations. So on the on the sort of defense side, on the NATO or homeland security side, there was also anticipating a sort of major cyber offensive, so much so that NATO essentially said, we view Article 5 as invoked if there is a cyber attack against, say, a civilian critical infrastructure. That also didn't happen. And I'm sort of at a loss. Did we do the same thing in the sort of homeland security, cybersecurity field as the military analysts did on the, the military field? So I don't think so. That's such an important question, but I don't think so, Juliet. You're absolutely right that cyber is the dog that didn't bark. Yeah. But I think the explanations from folks who work in that area strike me as plausible. That first of all, because we had seen the Russian playbook before, NSA and Cybercom pushed teams forward in advance of the Russian invasion to help the Ukrainians and others, the Romanians, the Bulgarians, the Poles, identify their vulnerabilities and strengthen them. So we're helping them. Second, it is an active battle space. The Russians are good at cyber crime. It's not clear they're really good at cyber operations. They are having to talk on Ukrainian cell phone networks because they are not proficient enough to set up their own (laughs) defensive communications network. That's like out of Chekhov or something. It's not clear whether they can't do it or whether there's so much corruption that they could do it, but it's unexecutable because people are siphoning money off. And the third thing is the Ukrainians are really good at this. Mm -hmm. And so they adapted very quickly and they got a lot of help. I mean, I'm a big believer that the superpower of free societies is 
civil activism. You know, that the anonymous hackers group are going against the Russians and revealing, for example, the entire personnel roster and communications network of the Russian defense ministry. The Ukrainians are getting a lot of help from a lot of experts that are rightly outraged at Russian aggression against a peaceful country. Yeah. Interesting. I also get the sense that, just as you say, you have a really animated Ukraine fighting force with a sense of mission and a really demoralized Russian fighting force that doesn't want to be there. I wanted to follow up the first thing you said, though, Corey, because so first you suggested that little by little, the Ukrainians are getting and pressing an advantage and also that Russia thought it would make quick work of them. But we read a couple big pieces, one in the Times this week, that a protracted war, which seems more and more the scenario we're settling into, disfavors Ukraine, and indeed that they're thinking about certain kind of aggressive actions in the South in order to get out of that scenario. So is that true as you read it, and how does it dovetail with what you said initially? So I think the Ukrainians' big fear is that Western publics and Western governments, once gas prices go through the roof and winter starts having questionable supplies, that we will stop sending weapons, stop sending money, stop giving political support. That's the fundamental vulnerability of Ukraine. And so they don't want a long war, in part because War crimes by the Russians in places like Bucha are the Ukrainian experience. So they're afraid that Western support will falter and Western support is essential. And they are grieving the behavior of Russians in Ukrainian communities. But the equation is actually much more difficult on the Russian side because Putin doesn't want to admit how badly they're doing. So they won't go for a general mobilization. 80% of the Russian army is already in Ukraine. Wow. And they're losing. Of the entire army. Of the entire Russian army is in Ukraine, and they can't break Ukrainian innovation, fighting spirit, and toughness. So Russia has relaxed all of the typical standards on volunteers. They are recruiting 60-year-old men who have no military training that's going to drive Russian casualties up even much more. And the weapons that are flowing into Ukraine, you know, last October, the Biden administration said, we can't give them weapons because they'll just end up in Russian hands. By December, it was, we can't give them offensive weapons, only defensive. And parenthetically, I love Jim Mattis's rejection of that, which is he's been shot at by both offensive teams and everything. You can't really tell the difference. By March, we were saying we will give them offensive weapons, but nothing that can range Russian territory. By May, we were saying, okay, it can range Russian t- territory, but we're going to make them promise they won't use it. And now when they use those weapons to attack Russian bases in Crimea, we're saying, but right, Crimea's Ukraine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you can see the movement of... All of us becoming more committed to Ukraine's victory because unless Ukraine succeeds, the European security order will collapse. Allies will be more worried. We will have to deploy more troops there. Russia will become emboldened 
if we won't defend our interests and an international order that's made us safe and prosperous, if we won't defend it at its front line in Ukraine. And Matt, what's your sense on this issue of American support? Is it overall holding? Can you see it being sustained indefinitely? We're not traditionally that much of a sort of internationalist society. If that really is the linchpin, how precarious do you see that as being for Ukraine? It is a great question. There are two places in which you really have to worry. One is the impact of gas prices or gas shortages, which is a much bigger problem for the Europeans than for the United States. Obviously, we're all part of the same global energy market, but the U.S. does not import We imported a little bit of Russian gas before the war. We now import zero Russian oil and gas. And we, of course, produce much more of our own energy than the Europeans are able to. And so that's not much as much of an issue for us. But the other one where it is an issue for America, of course, is the continued spending of billions of dollars uh, in weapons. And I will say I was impressed when I was at the White House working on this issue, and I continue to be impressed that there is bipartisan support in Congress for that continued spending. By the way, if you don't explain the special role you had for a few minutes, because it's really germane here. Yeah. Yeah. So I spent 100 days inside the White House for a month leading up to the war and the first two months of the war, running communications, legislative relations, and public outreach across the government for the Ukraine war. So across the Pentagon and, and the State Department, the other national security agencies. And I will say, we, of course, we worked hard to ensure that we got support from Congress for funding. And, and the last bill that the president went to funded the war effort pretty much through the fall or through the end of the year. But eventually it will run out at the rate that yeah. we've been supplying them with weapons and we'll, they will have to go back to Congress. And there is an open question with you know, Trump has come out in opposition to continued funding. There's you know, Josh Hawley and others. There's a small movement, but a small vocal movement. I think it was 12 votes in the Senate last time. There's a question at some point, does that break? I think the good thing is because we don't have the energy pressures and it's just a question of spending, it's a much easier ante for the U.S. taxpayer than it is for Europeans. That said, the last thing I'll say, the U.S. has worked very hard to lessen Europe's dependence on Russian gas. You can't do it all in the short term, but we've tried. We've been surging LNG, liquid natural gas, into Europe. And this week, the administration announced a really important plan to impose a price cap on Russian petroleum. So the idea of it is Russian petroleum can stay on the market. It's not an embargo, but it can only be sold at a certain price level. So if, for example, the going rate for petroleum is $100 a barrel for oil, Russian oil will be sold at 60 or 70. I don't know what the exact number they landed on. It's a way to keep there from being continued shocks in the energy market but choke off the revenue that Putin depends on. And it really is the revenue that funds his entire economy. Yeah. Which, by the way, I'm told is back to previous pre-war levels, apparently, the, re- the gas revenue. Yeah, that's right. So it's something that the Secretary of Treasury has been working on since the spring, and they finally announced it today, and I think will have an enormous impact both on stabilizing the market and choking off his funding source. 
this is not my area of expertise compared to the two of them. And so I come into this reluctantly, but just, I think just taking a step back on the sort of tectonic shifts in terms of NATO that have occurred that we sort of like, oh yeah, that happened. But I think the other thing is just a really interesting discussion brought on by this, which I don't want to take us on too much of a tangent, but in the same week that Matt was talking about is a reassessment of nuclear energy in light of Mm. the dependency on Russian gas by Europeans. I am a big fan of nuclear energy. I believe everything has a risk and one can do a lot to minimize the risk. If you look at Germany, their exit really dramatic shift for them a few years back. Their exit from nuclear uh, was based on a faulty interpretation of what happened at Fukushima. It really was the political pressure of Fukushima. So I write about this in my book that there actually was another nuclear facility did not have a meltdown. We always learn from the one that does have a meltdown, but let's maybe we could learn something from the one that did it, which you actually can protect nuclear energy from bad things and you do a whole bunch of stuff to to fail safer, as I say. But so I really think this is an interesting longer term shift as well. However, the war turns out is maybe a re-embracement by the left. You're starting to see the Democratic Party move back towards nuclear that will be part of a clean energy portfolio that is much less dependent on just, you know, this is like really, besides the fact that it's Russians, oil and gas. It's like really messy and old school. And there's all sorts of other alternatives that we should be thinking about. Though I'll just drop a quick footnote to say, you know, the biggest nuclear plant, is it in, in Europe? The yeah, one that I, I know. That nobody can pronounce. or whatever. <laughs> there's all these worries about some kind of like terrible Chernobyl event. Corey, I wanted to do this as sort of an exit question and invoking your expertise again, because you've retweeted or tweeted, but several threads about the way the war has changed not only Russia and Ukraine, and maybe permanently, especially Ukraine, but the international world order. So that's something people haven't talked very much about, even when we were in a frenetic 24-7 posture about the war. I I wondered if you could explain what some of those changes are and whether you think they will be permanent. Sure. I think the most positive effect is Countries of the West, including Japan, South Korea, Singapore, Australia, understand that we all have stakes in the war in Ukraine, that they were early in support of Matt's work in the White House. They were early into the economic sanctions. That was Matt's persuasiveness, of course. That's the big factor. No more Miller in the White House. How are we going to keep the consensus alive? (laughs) You see the emergence of small and middle powers who typically in the international order want to keep their heads down and not get trampled. Understanding that an international order that China and Russia are working towards is actually going to be impoverishing and dangerous, especially for small and middle powers, because they won't have the latitude to set the rules or to have neutral rules in the way that the international order that the U.S. and its friends created out of the ashes of World War II has given them. So you see a realization of what is at stake and countries voluntarily stepping forward to contribute. I also think Sweden and Finland's joining NATO is part Mm -hmm. of this Mm -hmm. and increasing realization that the order itself is under enormous pressure And second, that they are not going to like the rules of an order that China and Russia 
propagate, which is that the strong do what they will and the weak suffer what they must, and that a fundamentally unfair trading and economic order that benefits the countries strong enough to take what they want. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, what a difficult position this puts the government of China in. Yeah. Because several days before Russia's invasion, they announce an unlimited treaty of friendship. And yet China, because it is so much more intertwined in the global economy, and because the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party fundamentally relies on their ability to deliver economic prosperity for the Chinese people, that they can't afford to really go all in in support of the Russians. So you see them refusing to sell arms, you see them refusing to provide loans, you see them being very dicey as time goes on, because they have just shackled them to an army that isn't even the best army coming out of the former Soviet Union. And so a lot of those kinds of dynamics. The third one I would mention is that we need to be very careful about overestimating the amount of support our vision has. You know, more than 100 countries in the international order are not taking sides in this or are buying the Russian arguments about Ukraine deserving it. And we need to embolden voices like the Kenyan ambassador to the United Nations. And we need to help developing countries that are suffering because of the energy prices and the inability to get foodstuffs to solve those problems so that it's clear who the bad guy is and who is helping them solve their problems. Three great points, and two of them pretty hopeful, I got to say. Your students, I know, await you in about 90 uh, seconds. So we just want to thank <laughs> yes. you so much for having joined. And we've got a, another topic to take up, Juliet and Matt, but hope to see you soon on another Talking Feds, Corey. I wanted to end with the soul of the nation mm. speech, you know, not not a very kind of Biden-like, very sort of stirring and elegiac. He came out slugging in the soul of the country, and he invokes Trump and MAGA by name, extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. So obviously, this is a concerted decision. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they think it's worth the risk. I just wondered, what is the thinking of the White House and the administration in sending him on the hustings to make such a both stirring, but also in high-minded terms, kind of antagonistic speech and theme. I would say three things. Number one, to influence all of the debates that are happening in state houses and local municipalities around the country, where we're seeing people running for office who are running explicitly on a platform of being able to throw out votes, even down to the, like, the local registrar level. It's to influence all of that conversation and participate in it and lay down a marker of what the president believes is a fundamental threat to democracy. I think number two is to lay out the stakes of the midterm elections at the congressional level to point out that there is one party that believes in democracy and one party that doesn't. He made clear not everyone in that party, but there are a number who don't and who are willing to use violence when it suits their interests. And that is on the ballot, even if he didn't specifically say it's on the ballot. And the third thing I'll say, I constantly hear people 
who believe that Joe Biden is not going to run for re-election. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> when you watched that speech last night, did that seem yeah. to you like a president who doesn't no. plan to run for re-election? <laughs> and does Joe Biden seem like the kind of person who wouldn't run for re-election? Right. I, yeah. <laughs> right. That constituency. Yes, I agree with you. That's such a good right. point. I know people were trying to interpret it in light of like, does he know whether there's going to be an indictment? Or not? He doesn't know. I totally agree with Matt on the speech. You know, I have been looking at the last two years once again from just like the sort of counter-radicalization, even counter-terrorism lens. I view Trump as the leader of a terror movement. I don't shy away from that and has used different tactics over the course of his time from the what in the wonky world we call stochastic terrorism, which is just sort of you're throwing out violence as a solution and you're letting people run with it. You're not telling them what to do to the more targeted stuff, which is clearly January 6th and then subsequently. So then if you're looking at this from a counterterrorism or counterinsurgency effort rather than the political effort, it also was necessary because Matt and I live in the Twitter world and everyone wants this like grand moment and gesture and, you know, everyone apologizes and says, I'm so sorry I supported him, whatever. It's not how these things work, right? Ideologies, Mm -hmm. including violent ones. And for a variety of reasons, they don't end. I'm sorry. They either grow or they fizzle. And I'm hard-pressed to say this thing has grown, if anything. As I said, the extremes are really loud, but for a variety of reasons, including the arrest, massive, massive sentencings now, five years, 10 years. These are not insignificant arrests. So from the perspective of recruitment, support, financing, organization, it just becomes harder for Trump to do what he had done before. Also, he's not president. He just simply does not have the levers of DOJ or DOD or DHS even. So that all makes me very, very confident. But then so if terror groups, of violent groups fizzle, right, because they can't recruit, what are other metrics? And one of them is that there begins to be provided an off-ramp for those who were able to separate the violence from, say, the cause that they wanted. We found this in counterterrorism as well. Honestly, it's one of the reasons why I'm not making the comparison. It's one of the reasons why ISIS eventually got into what were sort of romantic promos for recruitment. They, you know, they would send out these things, you know, that were like, come on, ladies, you know, you're going to have a mink coat and a Rolls Royce, you know, where it's like, no, I mean, there's a reason why they're doing that. So off-ramp, can you just elaborate what you mean by that? You've got to give people a way to separate themselves from the violence. And you do that not by telling them they're going to be Democrats. They do not want to be Democrats. They are not interested in that. They are movable because they can no longer sustain what is only a violent movement. In other words, before they could dismiss it, they could say he didn't really incite it. Oh, that's just him. He's such a bozo, whatever. What Biden did is you're clearly aligning Trump with violence. There's nothing else but violence or the threat of it. And I think that's really important. This is what the January 6th committee, I think, has been so successful on is basically they're saying you may not be the first one off, but you don't want to be the last. And I think that's right. I think that's what Biden's saying. So I was really pleased with it. You know, everyone's going to pick and choose what parts they liked. But I thought overall, I found it very unifying. And, And I know... MAGA and and ultra conservatives are complaining about disunity. I actually am very curious what the independents and others view of it is. What about that from the level of craft and rhetoric? Matt, you tweeted that it was a good speech and hard to believe that American president has to give. Yeah. And certainly that second part is right, but we don't think of him as a stirring hmm. speaker. 
We think of him as plain spoken, et cetera. But you you gave him high marks for the actual language and delivery, yeah? Yeah, and look, one of Joe Biden's strengths has always been kind of a plain speaker, but he also has a history of rising to the occasion in big rhetorical moments. His convention speeches as vice president, his inaugural address, his speech after he won the presidency, I think his speech on the anniversary of January 6th, and his speech in Europe, which had the somewhat, let's say, garbled ending, but his speech in Europe about the Ukraine war were all big rhetorical moments. So he does have the ability to hit some high notes, which is an important job of the presidency. It's one of the key moments is to lay out where the country's going, the challenges it faces, and how he wants to guide it in a different path. And he hit all the right notes. And I'm not surprised at all that the most extreme portions of the right have reacted so strongly to it. My dad was a Baptist preacher. And he would say that every Sunday when you gave a speech about whatever type of sin you were on that week, you could tell who it hit by how much they complained on the way out of the congregation. Wow. So <laughs> you, you could awesome. always <laughs> you would I'm you could tell notes. who yeah. Ne- yeah, yeah, you could tell who needed to hear the speech by how much they complained. And so it is no surprise that there are a lot of complaints from the extreme right. That is awesome. Yeah. So what's your sense, by the way, where, you know, it's Labor Day Mm -hmm. and so traditional election season. Was this a kind of one-off to set a theme or is he going to be out there with this basic approach going forward? This was the framing speech for the midterms. This is going to be his theme from now through the election, I think. Yeah, this is, I agree with that. I think this is the framing and then particular policies and particular row are the sort of tactical issues Which that the speech that was ha- half of the speech yeah. was that was the more tactical yes. sort of yes we're for this we're for that and whatever and i think that's and we've achieved this yeah in and yeah. i have to say you know I, I look at these numbers and read the pools but the number of women who are registering and stuff i have yeah. a daughter who's in college so i know that peer group to a certain extent i think we have no idea how pissed off the ladies are like i just think it's you know and it's not just the blue ladies it's like you know i think i think you're just kind of pissed and how you measure that i don't know so we'll definitely see and you have to remember also speech like this gives a lot of cover for people in state and local races to not Mm, shy away from basically calling it what it is which is a violent movement i think that's been a challenge for it's been so frustrating for me i mean it's just like there's nothing left of maga but violence and i think you have to remember this gives a lot of people who they weren't both sides in it, but, you know, we always use words to make it seem less worse than it is. But Biden did a full frontal attack yeah, on it. Yeah. And I thought that was important. And in individual races, there is this terrific dynamic where you can just say to it, well, look, you said this. Are you for it or yeah. aren't you? Trump maybe can get away with it, but I think it really does put people on the defensive. You did notice that Trump spent a morning. It was this week. Was it not actually republishing the nastiest, most violent MAGA crazy stuff. So we're finally belatedly looking at the importance of races for Secretary yeah. of State down to registrar. And where those come to it, I think Democratic candidates for those races can really hold their opponents' feet to the fire, it seems to yeah. me. Yeah, I think that's right. Can I just say one thing, Matt? I I knew you had done that, and that's not easy to do. And so I think it's just terrific you jumping in during that moment. I haven't talked to you since, but 
you have such a skill in this. And I, I'm going to say on the record that to the extent that of being able to communicate it in a whole of government way that made sense to people and what this was about. That's not a given. People think that stuff is a given. It's not a given because I think the Afghan withdrawal narrative shows that that's really hard to do. And so anyway, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. And I'll just add, because he's going to aw shucks this. (laughs) And of course, you know, he had a good cause, but it was really remarkable. The entire country, and as I said before, it's just not a normal American trait. They were really, really, really behind it, and the other voices were quieted, and I think there were very effective quiet outreach to Congress, but then broader. Anyway, yay, Matt Miller. Yay! And speaking of Matt Miller, by the way, we will really look forward to reconvening with him in our quarterly or so look at what's going on within DOJ, which should be really, really interesting with Andrew Weissman and Katie Banner in Matt's hometown of Austin, Texas at the Texas (gasps) Tribune Festival in a few weeks. That's going to be a rip-roaring good time. All right. 90 seconds or so for our talking five. We take a question and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question prompted by the events of the week. What is Sarah Palin's next job? Five words or fewer, please. Candidate. Is this just going to do it again? Four words, four words left over for you. Yeah. Mar-a-Lago document sorter. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going with cast of Saturday Night Live. All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Corey, Matt, and Juliet. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. Submit your questions to TalkingFeds.com contact whether it's for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments, or for a special Q&A session with me, which we hold for Patreon subscribers once a month and which is coming up this week, Wednesday, September 7th. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Laurel Feldner, Kalena Tano, Emma Maynard, and David Emmett. Thanks very much to the great Pendulet for explaining subpoenas and search warrants. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.